You're listening to the Greatest Multifamily Investment Advice Show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the Greatest Multifamily Advice Show. Today we have a Christian Spielvogel, an exceptional guest and real estate investor out of Ottawa region of Ontario. Help me please to welcome Christian. Thank you very much, Adam. Thank you so much for being us with, with us today, and I appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. I always love to help people out. Thanks a lot. So I would like to start with the beginning uh, for your business, how you started on multifamily. Hmm. That, that's a, an interesting question. So uh, I got into it because I didn't know any better. I guess it's the simple answer. <laughs> because, uh, I had originally, my first building that I bought that was uh, a rental was actually a four unit building. Okay. Um, and the first true commercial property I bought was a six unit building, which was the second one. Okay. Um, so uh, I never really thought that buying a four unit or a six unit would be any different than buying a house, if you will. Okay. And so I didn't have any preconceptions about complexity or difficulty. Um, so I just went for it. Uh, I had the four unit came up for sale. It was literally uh, next to my house. It's a purpose built four unit building. It's not a conversion or anything. It's literally a four unit uh, building. Um, and we knew the owners. And so we did that one as a, as a private deal. Um, and, uh, I will tell you that, uh, I was very conservative about that one. I was, I was nervous about the whole thing. Um, you know, a lot of people tell you that, oh yeah, it was no big deal. I, I was worried because I was a single income family. Hmm. Um, so my wife was not working. She was, she chose to raise the children. Um, and so we had basically just one income coming to the family. So I underwrote that so conservatively. Uh, I spent about four or five days analyzing it on Excel spreadsheets, you know, in every which way that I could, thinking about things like, uh, um, you know, what happens if interest rates would spike? What happens if I had extended periods of vacancy? How long could I sustain a negative cash flow situation if that were to happen? Hmm. Um, so I took that all into account. Once I convinced myself I knew what I could tolerate, I knew what my price ceiling was going to be. Hmm. And so then when I got into discussions with the, uh, the seller, uh, he had definitely different price expectations than me. Mm. As usual. <laughs> it was definitely lower than his. Yeah. Um, and we had, it was a, it's a cute discussion in hindsight uh, because uh, it was a, an elderly gentleman uh, mm. and his wife. Uh, he was about six and a half feet tall and she was lucky if she was even five feet tall. So <laughs> she was just a little thing. Uh, and so the, the discussion went where we were negotiating back and forth and I explained to him, you know, because he wanted, I think it was, uh, uh, just over a million dollars for the property. When and was that? I, it, downtown Ottawa. No, when? In, uh, right on the canal, beautiful area. No, no. Was, when, when, when's this oh, happened? 2005. Oh, okay. Long time back. Wow. One, one million yeah. dollar. Wow. Yeah. It was about a million. Yeah. And, okay. uh, 
I went through the underwriting. I didn't really know what I was doing. I just know numbers. Um, mm. So I didn't understand things like cap rates and all this kind of stuff. I just mm. figured out, okay, I needed to understand how cash flow was going to work. Yeah. And that's where I focused originally. And so I had the discussion and I showed him, uh, I said, well, you know, I understand you want a million, but when I go through the math, uh, I don't understand how this is going to work if it's, uh, you know, anything, you know, above 800. Hmm. And so we got into a back and forth discussion about it. We'd gotten down to about 900 at that point. He, he, he was at 950 and then it came to about 900. And I, I said, I, honestly, I just can't, you know, 850 is my absolute limit. Otherwise I'll have to walk away from the deal. And he, I could tell in his face, he didn't want to do it for 850. And hmm. then his wife, like I said, she was a little thing there. She looks up at him. And she says, they're such a lovely young couple. Give it to them for 850. Right? Okay. Look he, you. Looked at, he looked at her and he says, you know, looking down, right? He says, because <laughs> he's so tall, he says, okay, I guess we're doing this for 850. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The government said the last word, do it. 850, <laughs> give it to them. That's, that's right. So yeah. that, that was my first deal. And, uh, you know, they're, they're a beautiful couple. We stayed friends uh, after that. Uh, mm. uh, and I bu- ended up buying another building from him later on, which oh, okay. uh, we also did privately. Okay. Okay. So when well, you're saying privately, you mean vendor to back, correct? No, no, just private sale. No realtors involved. Uh, okay. 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 Yeah. Okay. Um, so the first question would be about uh, your uh, actual target uh, market and criteria. So uh, where are you actually buying right now? And regarding uh, looking for actual deals, what is your criteria regarding uh, internal rate of return, cap rate, especially with the kind like the current inflation on all over, um, I think Canada, not, on, not even Ontario. So what is your criteria basically? Sure. Boy, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, it's an actual underwriting process. It's like maybe seven, eight pages on, on Excel. <laughs> but if you want to summarize it in two, three points. It sometimes results in that. Uh, yeah. But no, I, the way I look at it fundamentally yeah. is I start with the question of an acquisition of saying either the property is going to cash flow, hmm. right? So it's either cash flowing or I have line of sight to cash flow. Okay. Okay. So, you know, obviously if it cash flows, that's uh, a good starting point. Um, and often it doesn't, but you get lucky. Um, so the line of sight to cash flow leads back to a business case. So for me, the way I look at any acquisition is, um, you know, if it doesn't cash flow right now, I have to figure out what I'm going to have to do to change the asset so that it does cash flow. Hmm. Uh, and so sometimes it's simple. Sometimes it's just that, the building is below market rent and the demographics support a reasonable rate of turnover for tenants. Hmm. Uh, Sometimes it's more complex where you have say um, some units that are not ideal. It might be a building full of three bedroom apartments and the market in that area might dictate that it should be one bedroom apartment. So well, then you might split them up Hmm. or sometimes it could be, uh, we've done projects where we'll take it right back to the bricks or right back to the studs all the way back and, and convert them into uh, higher and better use, uh, whatever that might be. 
So in a pure residential application, for example, I have a, a project right now where we're converting a seven unit building that was constructed in 1901, uh, hadn't been renovated since uh, 1929. And um, we're going to convert it to a 12 unit building. Oh, okay. What is that? Uh, that's in think? downtown Ottawa in center town. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're basically focusing only on your local market on surrounding areas of Ottawa, correct? We, we do, but that's just by chance um, because Ottawa has such a, a solid economy. There aren't crazy wild fluctuations where you'll see because you have two parts of the economy. You've got the public sector and you've got the private sector. Okay. And they always tend to work opposite cycles to each other. So for example, when the private sector is suffering because we're in a recession, what does the government do? Well, they start to spend in order to stimulate the economy. That usually means that the public service spend goes up as well. So when private sector is suffering, public sector is booming. And likewise, when the private sector is booming, the public sector tends to back off a little bit and go back to balanced budgets. So we have this unique dynamic in the city where um, you end up with a very level, steady increase over time that averages, you know, if you look over a very long period of time, it averages about a 6% rate of increase. Okay. So now the city has reached an interesting turning point because it just went over, but two years ago, it went over the million person mark just in the city of Ottawa, not including surrounding. Hmm. So the surrounding, if you include, for example, Gatineau, which is on the Quebec side of the river, yeah. about another half million people. So we've got about a total of one and a half million. And so the population growth is accelerating and the, the growth of uh, housing is accelerating in commercial development. Hmm. Uh, so we started buying in tier two towns just outside of Ottawa. So we still buy stuff in the downtown core, hmm. but obviously those are much more involved projects that require significant repositioning projects uh, whereas if you go to tier two towns you if you're careful you can still find stuff that'll cash flow and acquisition mm. and i just did an acquisition of that in march i bought a portfolio of buildings um, that uh, cash flowed on acquisition but the rents were still 30 percent below market so as the tenants turn over i've got yeah. a huge upside in, in those particular projects. Hmm. And they're beautiful buildings as well. Um, 100%, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I, I, love, I love picking up buildings that I like looking at. Right? So, so, so you're for this po point, I wanna ask you about the challenge of Ontario rental market, uh, whereas there is no rent control and it's not investor friendly. So right now, what is your approach for uh, refinance as usually, uh, force appreciation right away or key a key for like cash for keys or uh, waiting until renewal so what's the actual strategy for refinance yeah absolutely so when i do an acquisition i take a look at the demographics in a building right okay. and if uh so i tend to take a very ethical approach to things um i don't like to disrupt people's lives. Hmm. Uh, I don't feel that that's fair. And hmm. if you're, for example, if a building was full of seniors, hmm. I just can't, you know, get around the aspect of trying to encourage them to leave or to force them to leave. It's just, hmm. um, you know, I, I see 
elderly people and I think of my own parents and what mm -hmm. would I want in that scenario and I just I can't do it mm -hmm. so um, you know whereas younger demographic people that are in their 20s and 30s they have natural life events um, they're you know getting together as couples they're separating they're mm -hmm. uh, having a child they're uh, you know they're moving their career takes them somewhere else so they're highly mobile and so they turn over quickly so if I yeah. see a building that is largely 20 and 30 somethings in in the building then i i know that i'm not have going to have to do anything crazy in order to be able to get that done hmm. so if it's a building full of seniors i typically won't even touch it if it's cash flowing i will but hmm. if it's not and my business case relies on ter tenant turnover hmm. then that business case the way i would execute on it would take too long and therefore the internal rate of return would ultimately be too low hmm. Um, but if it's a younger demographic that I know they're just, it's just natural life will get them to turn over and my business case will fundamentally be better. So uh, what kind of cap rate right now you're looking for on all of your deals? Hmm. So as long as it cash flows, right? So that's hmm. the way I look at it in the, the first place. Yeah. yeah. And, and then the cap rates, I look at sort of a secondary thing it's more about using it to define the value of the property either on acquisition or on refinance um, so a cap rate will give you an idea whether it's going to cash flow but when you think about it in the context of your overall business case um, that's what really matters so you asked earlier what some of my criteria were Mm. Um, and I'm usually looking at, uh, you know, whether it cash flows, mm. I look at my initial cash on cash return. Yeah. Uh, my exit is almost always an infinite cash on cash return because I'll do a complete equity takeout on the refi. Yeah. Um, and then the other major hurdle for me is the internal rate of return or IRR needs to be greater than 30%. 30 or 13? 30, three, zero. Whoa. Yeah. IR, okay, is a lot. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's my hurdle. So, uh, and one of the reasons I have that hurdle is let's say I'm doing a repositioning project or a new construction project. Mm -hmm. Then if I have a hurdle rate of about 30% uh, on that, then the odds are that I'm going to be able to get all my equity out. And the further north of 30% I am, uh, I get to take extra equity out. So every one of my projects or the vast majority of my projects, I should say, are ones where once we're complete, we'll do a refinance. My initial working capital that went into it, including any construction costs that went in, that all comes back out. And I'm usually looking to take extra money out. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the way I think about it. Okay. Um my next question will be, you know what's happening now in on the last four months, three months, starting from February. What's the current market performance now after the new spike of interest on inventory prices and and the impact on multifamily right now on Ontario region? Or not Ontario, uh, Ottawa region. Yeah, so the the impact is, you know, so here, here's the thing. The retail market, which I classify as uh, single families, duplexes, triplexes, even up to fourplexes, um, I consider that the retail market. And then yeah. you've got the commercial market, which is, you know, basically five units or more in a building. Mm. Uh, it might have traditional commercial, such as office, business, et cetera. Mm. Um, they are valued differently and their dynamics are different. 
so when we take a look at the retail market, say, you know, we'll use the obvious example of the single family home, that does tend to respond quickly to interest rate changes because it affects people's affordability uh, on those particular properties. And if we take a look at what's happened in Ottawa, um, there's been uh, a bit of a slowdown, right? And by slowdown, I don't mean a drop, right? I just mean that the activity levels is dropped off on that side. Hmm. Um, now, I don't do stuff that small, to be fair. So I don't see it day in and day out. I only know what my realtor friends are telling me. <laughs> yeah. What they're seeing is a lot of sellers are getting nervous that uh, they may be missing the cycle. And so a lot of houses are coming onto the market very quickly. Hmm. Uh, and then, uh, of course, you get the other side of it, which is with interest rates, you've got an affordability question. And so mm -hmm. that tends to slow things down a bit. On the commercial side, uh, interest rates and cap rates have a uh, strong correlation. So when interest rates go up, uh, the cap rates typically have to go up too, because the mm -hmm. profit is largely made in the spread between what the cap rate is of the defective cap rate of the building and the cost of money that you have underneath. Yep. Um, so they are directly related. But offsetting that, uh, particularly in the small end of the market, is that there's so little inventory uh, for multifamily property. Mm. Um, you know, in Ottawa, the volume of multifamily property, I think last year was in the order of maybe 35 buildings turned over. Wow. So, and, and that's in a city of a million people. Yeah, so that's that's very low turnover. Um, so when it comes on the market and I bought a property last February, that's the seven unit that I'm converting to 12. Um, I was one of 16 offers on that. Wow. It was a highly competitive environment. Everybody wanted to get get in on these things when they become available. Mm. Um, so as interest rates if interest rates continue to go up, and I think that there, that's a whole other open question as to whether or not they will and whether or not uh, the central bank can really uh, continue to support increased interest rates in the long term. But assuming that they do, what you're, you should start to see, uh, especially in the larger buildings and, and starting to migrate down into the smaller buildings, is that their effective cap rates are going to go up and therefore their price and their price will go down a bit. Yeah, hundred percent. It's a competition also because eventually you're looking for the cash flow. So if the interest rate is going up, you have to the sellers have to lower their expectation because to make sense. So it's not gonna work with high prices anymore. So less competition, of course. Mm -hmm. So uh, regarding uh, your uh, business model for uh, raising capital how you start to work on closing deals. So are you raising capital or are you working with joint ventures? Are you looking for vendor takebacks, promissory notes? Uh, what is your uh, approach on this? Sure. And, and first of all, I'll, I'll never say no to a good vendor takeback deal. <laughs> I've done, I've done uh, a number of those. Uh, yeah. Some of them are, are uh, been outrageous deals, right? It's often a great way of buying an underperforming asset um, at, uh, at a way that will actually get it to cash flow or where you know conventional financing isn't going to work. And the seller knows conventional financing isn't going to work. So unless mm -hmm. someone comes in with deep pockets, they're not going to get the full value of their building. Mm 
Um, but if they do the financing, they can often get something more to what they, they actually want. So that, that's a great technique and I've used that quite a bit. Um, we don't go to external investors uh, in terms of, I mean, we would take private loans, but we won't take equity partners in. Uh, we don't do joint ventures. Um, we are fully self-financed. Um, and that was a conscious decision uh, when we started. Uh, we wanted to be in a position where we had full control of our portfolio all the time. So that if we needed to do something different, we don't need people's permission in order to make that happen. Um, so it gives us a tremendous amount of flexibility in terms of how we manage our portfolio. Mm. Um, and then what you find too is as your portfolio grows, um, you end up with quite a bit of working capital uh, to be able to do these acquisitions. So I probably have about uh, three, four yeah, three or four refinances that are going to happen on the back end of this year. Hmm. That's going to generate all kinds of new work and capital. I'm probably going to use that for new development projects that we have. We've done a little bit of land banking. Um, so that's uh, that's what we're likely to do with it. And, and on that one, it's always a test, right? It's like sometimes it's cheaper to buy a property and reposition it right, with your working capital and the business case is better that way. Sometimes when buildings are too expensive, you build instead because it's cheaper to build it than to reposition it. So depending on where we are in the cycle, we'll build or we'll buy. Uh, about this, because uh, now you're comparing between two uh, strategies. The first one is a debt partner. The second one is equity, equity partner. Uh, my question is uh, always that because you're following the debt uh, partner uh, strategy, which is for me, it's challenging because you have always to perform because if you're not performing, the debt uh, partner is going to get, uh, is he going to come and take the property, which is harder to swallow. But on the other part, which is where, where you have equity partner, yes, you're giving control but you have five, six, seven years to perform. And I understand it, but I understand what you choose is more challenging, but it's showing that you are really performing and you don't care about the challenges, 100%. Yeah, and, and with, the, with the debt partners, uh, I mean, most of my debt is with commercial lenders. It's yeah. not with private lenders. Um, and, uh, I have a good reputation, right. Amongst the lenders, uh, okay. and especially the commercial lenders. So when I'm presented, uh, there's usually not an issue of getting, getting mortgages. The other thing that I do, and the lenders are aware of this because you have to submit your, your net worth or your balance sheet for your operation. Hmm. Um, and they know that my debt to asset ratio is relatively low. So okay. I'm not highly leveraged. I might be highly leveraged on a particular deal. Okay. So I might take it at 90% or even go to hundred percent on a particular deal, mm -hmm. but across the portfolio, I don't let the debt to asset ratio go above 65%. Okay. And that's strategic yeah. because one is I, I look better to lenders, right? So they go, okay, this guy's got a lot of equity. He's not going to default. On, mm. on, on payment. And even if he did, right, there's enough equity here to fully pay us back plus all our costs, et cetera. So, mm. so they see that. Um, the other is that it's a defensive position from my portfolio perspective. So, you know, 
the economy is incredibly difficult to predict. You just don't know what's going to happen. Uh, not really. You might have a good guess, but then, you know, a pandemic hits you or the Russians invade a country, right? Or, you know, whatever it happens to be. But again, enough one country. <laughs> <laughs> you just never know. So, yeah. um, so what's going to happen? So I take a defensive position in my portfolio that says that if we went through a significant market pullback, I want to know we're going to be okay. Okay. And then I also defend it in the way, you know, people are always talking about variable rates versus fixed rates. Well, on the commercial lending side, it's almost always fixed rates anyway. Yeah. But, I, but I tend to think of it more as um, you know, a fixed rates can be an insurance premium as opposed to just a cost of money. Hmm. So what you're getting with a, with a fixed rate is peace of mind in terms of predictable cash flow going forward. So I have a certain cash flow requirement in my business and I need to feed people, including myself, <laughs> but I need to, you know, my employees, they need to get paid. The contractors need to get paid. Um, uh, you know, all these expenses need to be done. So I tend to focus more on fixed rates for about maybe 60, 70% of my debt will be on fixed, probably closer to 70. And what that allows is a very predictable cash flow situation projected over time. Mm -hmm. So then I know that my business is not at risk. And this is something a lot of the really big people do. So if you're looking at the Mintos or the Homesteads, um, you know, the Paramounts, you know, the, the, the larger guys that are out there, the Hazelviews, they're often looking at very long-term debt. So they'll have an asset and they won't be looking at just a five-year uh, you know, mortgage. They might be locking in for seven years or even 10 years uh, because then the business case is highly predictable for that particular asset. Uh, it, the cash flow is very predictable for that particular asset. Hmm. Okay. Uh, we mentioned before, uh, like we were talking before me and you about the development part on your business. Can you highlight your uh, business strategy when you're doing a land development or development on, on your project? Uh, if we can uh, highlight what micro strategies you're, you're following on your business model for the development projects. Mm -hmm. So again, I, I always look at it as a business case, as we talked about earlier. Uh, I'm usually working on repositioning exercises um, and often where I'm trying to get highest and best use. So sometimes that highest and best use works within the existing zoning. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes uh, a particular asset isn't even maximizing the entitlements on a property to get to maximum density. Um, but the typical process that we use when we're doing a repositioning project, especially if you're doing anything, at least in Ottawa, if you're doing over a three unit building and you're adding another unit, you need to go through a process called site plan control. Mm. And site plan control is like a regular development application, but it brings around a bit more scrutiny about your demand on services and resources in the community, how the building fits in with the rest of the community and how it looks on that particular street. Um, so there's a lot of stakeholders involved. So for example, on, uh, on a project that we're working on, I just got an email from Bell Canada uh, mm. that wants to do a bunch of due diligence associated with our project. Uh, mm. But at the end of the day, what they really want to know is, can we put our fiber into your, uh, your IT vault in the building yeah. um, and service your building? I know that's what they're really asking. 
Um, but they then are part of the approval process to say whether they have any objections to, to the project or any input in terms of what they want to see done on that project. So it's quite an involved process. Um, and depending on the size of the project, it can require uh, just staff approval, or it could require approval by council, or it may require public consultation. Yeah, it's based on the, based on the criteria of the actual land zoning, I think. Because you mentioned the, the, the building from seven to twelve, can you uh, go through the? I'm sorry, can you go through the actual process with this one? Because it's interesting, especially uh, changing the zoning from seven to twelve. Mm -hmm. uh, you need uh, utility request. You need the uh, the zoning uh, to be changed. You have you need public hearing and approval. And you, as you mentioned, councillor, can you start like starting the process from the beginning? Highlight yeah, sure. of it. Um, so going from 7 to 12 absolutely has to go into a site plan control process. Hmm. Uh, it, it can go through with staff approval, which is good, but, you know, hmm. a counselor, the ward counselor will still sign off on it on the recommendation of staff. Um, but often when you're doing something like this as well is you also end up with variances. So, uh, you know, even if you fit within the zoning per se, especially if you're working in the downtown core, there's always something that is going to, because those buildings were done before modern zoning bylaws, mm. they always have some variance. It might be side yard setbacks, backyard setbacks, front yard setbacks. Um, and so I have exceptions to do on that. So we'll get to the variances and committee of adjustments as part of the discussion. But when you start that project, knowing that you have to go into site plan control, you know that you have a number of um, inputs to that site plan control. So site plan as part of its inputs is going to require, uh, for example, full architectural plan, including all the build specs. It's going to need a topological survey. It's going to need an environmental report. Um, depending where it is, it might need a traffic noise study. Um, uh, just trying to think, there's just a whole long list and it depends on where and what the project is. So you're, you end up with, um, uh, you know, a long list of engineers uh, that have to create all these documents for you, and you'll be spending tens of thousands of dollars on them, right? There's no sugarcoating that. Like, even my water servicing engineering plan is, uh, that one probably cost me about eight or $9,000 for this project. Uh, phase one environmental is easy. It's only about 2,500. It's very common anyways that you have to do them for multifamilies. Um, the, uh, How much is cost you the, the pre-development? How much is cost you the pre-development like so far with the engineering cost? And oh, uh, probably about $50,000 before I even submit the application. The application is about $23,000 just for site plan. Okay. And then each unit that we add, so we're grandfathered for the first seven units, the additional five units will have about $15,000 development charge for each unit added on top of site plan uh, and a cash in lieu of parkland fee, which is probably going to be in the order of about $20,000 a unit. So each unit is another $35,000 in soft costs associated with just the development fees, plus a uh, site plan application of 23,000. And if you add the engineering documents, about 75,000. So what's 75,000? 250. Hmm? So one, 250, 175 for the city, another 25 for the city for the application and 50 for the engineering, 250,000. 
Yeah, so it'd be fit five times 35. So yeah, yeah. plus plus uh, another 75 on top of that. Yeah, and yeah. That's, and, and, and if a significant renovation like that too, you've got CRA's rules, whether HST is attributable too. So when you do a project like that, and depending how we end up doing it, um, there's some workarounds, but if you were to just take it straight back to the bricks all the way through, um, then you're caught in CRA substantial renovation as well. So then you have to charge HST to yourself at the end of the project. So every level of government gets some piece of the pie here, right? And, and you know, you were doing the math pretty quickly and uh, you know, you're, before you even think about HST, you're well into 250k in soft costs, and we haven't even bought a nail or swung a hammer yet. Yes. Uh, uh, okay. So this is uh, you're gonna add another five units. Each one is about 150, I think, for construction. About, so each uh, each unit will cost me just in development fees and cash in lieu of parkland. It's going to be thirty-five thousand dollars each. So times five. So that's one seventy-five. Yeah plus uh, estimating about 75 for costs associated with the site plan control. So that brings you to 250. And the actual construction, how much? Uh, well, you know, how much is a loaf of bread, right? And how long does it last? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, Do you find material first? There's no material in the market. This is the same. It, it's challenging for sure. Yeah, yeah. And we'll adjust the pace of our construction based on development costs. Uh, but that, but the budget for that, uh, all in, including the soft costs, is going to be about two million dollars. Um, okay. I think I can do it for as little as one point five, uh, and my outer bound is about two and a half million. So I've got my best and worst cases in my business model. So the lending part here uh, for the development, how what is the challenge? Just for the people to understand the development part for the lending, this is supposed to be a commercial loan. For developers so it's going to be 50 percent loan to value correct it depends uh again so uh i have right now on this a 75 percent loan to value hmm. uh and, and that was based on market rents not even existing rents so i got it about 75 percent loan to value and they've given me some construction draws on top of that in order to complete the project but the 75 on is this existing seven units. I'm yeah. asking about the new five units. No. You're going to get a new loan at 50% loan to value, correct? No, no, no. So it, when you normally, when you're doing a, if you do a repositioning project, um, there are certain lenders that like to do simple repositioning. So if I was just doing a seven unit refresh, um, then, you know, you could go to somebody like Equitable Bank and they'll finance a 75% loan to value. Hmm. And then they'll give you a couple of construction draws that once you've completed certain stages of work, it, you basically go back to them, they get an updated appraisal and they loan you more money against hmm. the asset. So hmm. you keep rolling it forward on your construction. So when I talk about, you know, say a $2 million budget on construction, I have to front some of that because I have to do the initial construction cost. But mm -hmm. once I've demonstrated and increased the value of the building uh, to a certain level, so maybe it's uh, once I've got all the framing complete and it's serviced, but not necessarily the finishings, I can go back to the lender with an incremental appraisal on that building and get uh, another draw on mm -hmm. that particular loan. So all this stuff is agreed upfront before you start the project. Uh, so you're getting a base acquisition loan and then you're getting uh, construction draws on top of that as you go. Based so on your schedule. 
So you're going to be, based on your schedule, you have to be clear about three, six, nine, 10, 12 months, uh, like project schedule. And based on this, you start to submit the, uh, the documents to have draws or take draws from, from the construction loan. Yeah, they're usually looking for uh, budgetary values and where the thresholds are going to be, and then they hold you to those budgetary thresholds. Hmm. So I might say, for example, that I'm going to do, uh, I don't know, let's say three draws or four draws of $500,000 each. Hmm. So I'll need to float the first five or $600,000 to get the work done. And then what I'll do is I'll go back to them uh, at, at that point and say, okay, the, uh, the appraisal has been updated. We've done this much more value in, the, in this particular project. And then the lender will forward, you know, it's usually not the full 500, but they'll give me a draw of like maybe 375 or 400 okay. on that. Okay. So then I roll that forward into my working capital. I go to the next tier, I do a second draw. And so it just keeps rolling forward like that. And then when you get to the end of your project, you've got your as completed appraisal. Mm -hmm. And then you normally do a refinance and pay out the uh, the construction loan. Okay, okay, okay. So uh, regarding this part, uh, how you structure the deal between you and the developer, the operational partner? I, I'm not sure if you're the operational partner or not, but how no, you structure we, it? Yeah, we, we do this all in-house. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so we're our own general contractor. Uh, we have enough units that we're doing turnovers all the time. So we have staff doing that kind of stuff. But when we're doing a repositioning project, we, we go out and we get a, a builder, uh, but we act as the GC in that situation. So we'll manage, uh, you know, the framers, we'll manage the drywallers, we'll manage the plumbers, the electricians, you know, the roofers, pavers, all this kind of stuff. So how big is the team, by the way? The, well, our team is a total of about five people, so it's not that big, okay. um, but uh, then we do a lot of subcontracting work as well. So our plumber is not on staff, but we give him enough work that he, he's very reliable and is responsive to us. Uh, our electrician, uh, again, as a contractor, we do a lot of work for him, and, that, and that's a key thing, right? Like, if you keep these guys fed all the time with your projects, when you need them to do another project for you, you're going to get prioritized much higher mm. and they end up being much more reliable. So doing volume is just a really important aspect in this as well. But that's typically what we do. So for a, a construction build like that, uh, we'll pull in uh, structural framers, uh, we'll do general finishers, we'll do drywall people, et cetera. And they're never on staff. We just hire those as we need them. So especially on this part, when you're qualifying for the construction loan, I think you need to show the building, the builder resumes and the other trades as a sub, as a G, not as a GP, like as a partners on the, as of the GP uh, uh, team because you are the general contractor and I think they need the builder resume or uh, experience on, on the actual underwriting uh, documentation. Yeah, so we, we have that track record. Yeah. So, you know, the 7 to 12 is not our first rodeo. Okay? Oh, okay. So have, there, you know, I have an investor resume that I share with the lenders so that they can see a history of our projects. So that's credibility. Uh, I, I typically do a personal guarantee on this. It, it's almost inescapable in Canada anyway. Um, so they know that I'm good for the money. Mm -hmm. um, and so that de-risks the lender quite a bit. 
and uh, they don't necessarily need to see our staff or the contractors underneath. They just need to see the budget and the plan associated with it. And then, of course, um, you know, you, the other two things that that they need to see is the as is uh, appraisal and the as completed. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're working towards the as complete uh, particular appraisal. Yeah. 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 At the end, as you mentioned, at the end, you reappraise, get refinanced and pay the first uh, construction loan, which has been withdrawn as a drone, uh, like different phases during the construction uh, project. Yeah. Uh, if we can work, like uh, break down on one of your biggest deals regarding um, or your latest big deals, um, how you get the deal, uh, what was the uh, cap rate for it? Mm -hmm. uh, did you refinance it? What was the building class? Um, yeah, uh, what is also the upside about the, the project? It's going to be great. Okay. Um, okay, so do you want to see an example that is like completely done and already refinanced? Or yeah, I think so, yeah. Especially okay. because it's going to show the, the actual clear picture about the five-year performance or yep. the, at least the, the returns. Because you mentioned that... The, you're focusing especially on high returns, which is you said IRR thirty uh, percent. So it's uh, it's really high on the above the market uh, ratio. Like um, usually twenty two, maximum twenty two, but thirty is like really high on 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 force appreciation or burr. So yeah, it's gonna be great if we can uh, break down one of the deals. Yeah, sure. Okay, so I'll take uh, one that I did in. And I bought this property in 2017 and mm. we refied it in mid 2019. I've publicly disclosed these numbers uh, in, a, in a webinar recently as well. Uh, okay. And uh, so uh, where I show the actual math associated with it in fine detail, uh, but mm. I'll go over it roughly. In, in that webinar, there was, uh, I show the income statements and the balance sheet right mm, through okay. the phases of the project, which I think would be interesting for people. Uh, but it really kind of worked out to this. It was a, uh, a triplex with an illegal unit in it. Uh, it was in a very nice neighborhood uh, surrounded by people that were, uh, you know, they're doctors, lawyers, uh, professors, uh, you name it. So, you know, it was a high income um, neighborhood. And this one building was a sore <laughs> in that neighborhood. It was the building that everybody goes like, if something went missing, they knew where to find it. It was somewhere on that property. Yeah. Okay. And, in rough and condition. It, it was uh, in rough condition. The tenants were in, uh, you know, had their own challenges. Not all of them, but some of them. Hmm. Uh, one was, uh, quite frankly, a thief. And okay. Do is he would set he would steal from nearby construction sites and then resell it uh you know kind of on the black market if you will and then there was another tenant who had uh serious substance abuse issues uh and uh when we were demolishing uh the units there there were all kinds of needles that we found under the floors etc whoa so it was uh it was in really uh you know let's say challenged situation. So you can imagine when I have to go to variance, for example, a committee of adjustments, I, I explained to the neighbors what we were going to do. We were going to turn this from a, a rundown triplex to a sixplex. Hmm. And 
uh, and with good quality units and tenants that fit the demographics of, of fitting into that particular neighborhood. So mm. typically professionals, et cetera. Mm. Um, so when with committee of adjustments, it's always a risk management thing. So when you're asking permission for a variance in a committee of adjustments, you have to remember it's a political body. Yeah. So you need to de-risk their decision. They don't want a decision to come back to haunt them because it just makes them look bad, right? To the people that appointed them on that committee. Yeah. Um, so I go in with, uh, you know, very reasonable requests uh, and with benefits to the community. And then I get the neighbors to sign off on the plan so that I submit my application and say, the neighbors support what we're doing. Okay, so now it's even less risk for the committee of adjustments. And the vast majority of times when we go through committee of adjustments, we're in and out in under 10 minutes, right? Once we get to the front for our hearing slot, we're out, we're out in 10 minutes. There might be a lot of waiting before that, but it's, it's pretty quick. So in that particular project, the original plan was to do a simple, you know, tear down the walls and uh, re- reconstructed into a six unit building, but the building had a lot of challenges in it. The, we had part of the foundation collapse on us. Mm. We had, uh, when we pulled away a lot of the, 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 the plaster, we could see that somebody at some point in its history had cut through some of the joists because obviously they were inconvenient. <laughs> so let's cut it. Oh, it was, no need for it. It was a long process. So yeah. we, we issued N13 reason ones on this because oh, we we're yeah. fundamentally demolishing the interior of the building um, and relaying out in a completely different format. So that's valid for a, an N13 reason one. Uh, and that's an Ontario uh, thing. Yeah. I know your, your viewers are, are nationwide um, and probably international, actually. So, uh, so that's what we used as part of our um, rent control process, uh, okay. the, the uh, Re Residential Tenancies Act. In any event, so just talking about it from a numbers perspective, we acquired that building, I think it was 775000 is what we bought it for. Uh, and okay. there was competition at the time, um, but we, we managed to get a decent price on it. Uh, we put in probably about uh, 700,000 into that development. So okay. we're in for about, what's One, that, about 1.45. Yeah. Now we could round it to 1.5 for fun. Yeah. And uh, it appraised, when we were done, um, we appraised it at 2.1 million. Okay. Okay. So, and we had CMHC financing, or uh, sorry, CMHC insurance on the financing, uh, and we got a forty-year amortization on it as well. So, how you closed? You closed with CHMC, or you closed Pardon? on the you closed on CHMC or uh, hard money? The refi was done with CMHC. The yeah. refi, but the actual closing. The closing, we just it was conventional financing. Oh, okay. Uh, we did that one, I think, at 80% loan to value because it was a triplex. It uses a oh, residential. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, that one was done with TD. Uh, we did it on mm. a two year term. And uh, uh, I think it was, yeah, 80% loan to value on that one. And then on the refi, it was obviously a commercial mortgage. Yeah. Uh, and I think I did that one with First National, um, but we did it with CMHC underwriting as well. Yeah. Insured mortgage, uh, yeah. And, and it was great. So we got, uh, that one I think was close to 85% loan to value. The maximum of uh, CHMC. 
Uh, yeah, CMHC will do it up to 85% loan to value, but they underwrite very conservatively. So yeah. sometimes it's not quite what you think. But writing to it, CMHC uh, underwriting criteria, it was valued at 2.1 million with a, I think just about 85% loan to value. And, a, and the bonus here was the 40 year amortization. Did you so, had any green green system? Because I need I know that they offer some uh, ease on uh, the DSR. Like usually they go with 1.2 or 1.3, but if you have an actual green system like uh, solar, they can lower it to 1.1. Did you have anything like that? I think you're thinking of the CMLI program, which is for new construction. Yeah, uh, it's supposed to be new construction. What you did is new construction, yeah. basically. Yeah, that's for that program, it's new construction, right? And there's certain point system associated with it. Yeah. I haven't used it yet, but I'm probably going to be using it on a project uh, this year. Um, so I'm just about to go into that process. But for a conventional refinance, it's just their standard underwriting process. There's no uh, extra points that you're really looking oh, okay. for on that. Yeah. Um, it, so that, that process is, um, you know, it works actually quite well. So in that case, I got 85% loan to value in a 40 year am. So the, the, the cash flow was fantastic. And, that, and that's the key piece, right? Because if you're looking at your debt service ratio, right, which is effectively, uh, you know, the relationship between your net operating income and your debt. So mm -hmm. as you're, you're saying, right, that DSR should be typically at least 1.2. And in my experience with CMHC, it ends up being more like 1.3. Um, mm. you know, if you kind of look at it, you know, mm. with their conservative underwriting. Yeah. So, uh, if because of that, if you can get a longer amortization, right. And because this is effectively a new building, once we were done, I was able to get a 40 year amortization, which means my principal and interest payments are lower, which means my debt servicing is lower, mm. right. Which means it improves my debt service ratio. So it's not just about underwriting it to a conventional 25 or 30 year. You do want to take a look at extending the amortization period because it actually improves your loan to value on that particular asset. I think it's only working with CHMC. Regular a lender doesn't offer uh, 30 years or I mean 40 years. Only CHMC offering this, correct? So CMHC is an insurer. Okay. Yeah. So it's the lender, the lender loans me the money and they will loan it to me on that amortization schedule because CMHC has insured. Yeah, accepted. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But so if it, there's no CMHC, regular bank is not going to accept this unless the insurer can accept it, correct? That's right, because they want their money protected. Yeah, so, yeah. so that's where, yeah, you'll because you have CMHC, you have a longer amortization, you have uh, typically your interest cost will come down as well. In my experience, it usually results in a full point off of the, the rack rate price. Um, and uh, so it's usually a good discount there. And then you get a higher loan to value. So you are uh, let with, left with less money in that particular deal, if anything at all. Okay, okay. Uh, my next question will be uh, will be how you can like have your constant pipeline of deals. How you always find deals, if it's uh, uh, wholesalers, um, uh, commercial realtors, uh, maybe MLS. So how you like uh, created this constant pipeline to your business? Um it's an excellent question because I think this is the number one area that people struggle with. So 
I think a lot of people don't do proper underwriting on their acquisitions. Okay. okay. And I think people really need to uh, learn proper underwriting uh, for acquisitions in their business cases. So we'll take that as a given. The second biggest thing, but the one that most people end up focusing on is, is their deal pipeline. Hmm. Um, and uh, I don't think I have a magic recipe for this. Uh, the reality hmm. is that I develop relationships. I do a lot of networking. I get to know people in the community. I get to know the realtors. I develop uh, a reputation that we're closers, that we know what we're doing. So if someone brings me a deal and I put an offer on the table, I'm going to close. Hmm. There's no doubt, right? You know, from any of the, if the broker's involved, et cetera, they know I'm going to close. So that has a lot of credibility with a seller because you can imagine if a seller is looking at a bunch of different offers and some of them have conditions, et cetera, even, uh, you know, it all still put conditions, even in a competitive environment. So even when I was you know, telling you about that, you know, I was one of 16 offers on that building. I had yeah. conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I was the most credible person buying it. Right. And my conditions were reasonable. And so I'm, you know, the buying agent in that case is selling it to the selling agent and say like, no, no, no. If this guy has the deal, if you accept his offer, unless there's something really wacky that you haven't disclosed, hmm. he's going to close on this. So that part of it helps. Um, because the so, people doesn't want a tire kicker, to be honest, like all of this relationship confirms that you're not going to get away from the deal. So, yeah. Yeah. So your reputation is critical, right? In these buying environments when, when a deal has to be done. The other is the relationships. I have not bought a building where I didn't personally know the seller. Hmm. Okay. Really? Okay. Yeah. And it might've been that I only known them for about an hour, but I oh, will okay. take time to meet them. Oh, so okay. I always, and I, I use variety of strategies for that, <laughs> but, but I, I, I want to make sure that they understand that I'm a person. Okay. okay. And I want them to know who I am. And then when they're faced at the decision time between a blind offer and an offer from someone they've met, and they're say they're reasonably equal terms or very close, they're going to have, you know, unless you're a jerk, right? <laughs> and I don't think I am most of the time, but <laughs> you're not, don't worry. <laughs> you're not. You know, but if, if they like you, right, yeah. they're going to want to favor you. Okay. Okay. So, so that helps a, a lot too. So uh, maybe I've, we uh, can talk about uh, your techniques to meet with, uh, with the owners. No, yeah, we, we can definitely talk about that. And then, yeah. but uh, let's finish off on your thing. The other thing too, is because we have a reputation and we're present in the market and because we do networking and we talk to people all the time, you, you find out who is planning on selling at any particular time. You, you, ha you have mm -hmm. a feel for it, especially if you work in targeted markets. So rather than casting your feel to let me look on MLS across all of Canada, mm -hmm. if instead you say, for example, we focus in Centertown, Ottawa, we focus on Alma, we focus on Carleton Place. And if we focus on those specific markets, you get to know who the people are, the, the retailers, the other investors in that area. Mm. And you get to know who is likely to be selling and you have a conversation with them. Mm. So, so, and then even when you go to do a buy, they know who you are and whether you're credible. 
So a deal that I got, for example, in March, the portfolio deal we talked about earlier, that was one where uh, a realtor called us. He had it under contract. Mm. Uh, he was planning to do something with it. Uh, he was nervous about his ability to execute on that particular deal. For, for himself. This was under yeah, contract for himself. For himself. Oh, yeah. okay. it, I think it was really, it was just, it was too big for him. It was something out of his, com- well out of his comfort zone. Yeah. And so he called us up because uh, he knows that we invest in the area. And he said, uh, would you be interested in this? And I said, well, send me the numbers. Hmm. I ran the numbers. And you know that commercial where, you know, the lady comes running into the store, jumps into the passenger side, tells her husband, start the car, <laughs> right? <laughs> it was one of those. Yeah. yeah. So okay. I looked at the numbers and I said, this is either a great deal because the, the realtor had actually done a good job of underwriting, to be okay. fair. So, okay. you know, it, it wasn't perfect. And I was still able to knock off some, some, some conservative words. Hmm? You did conservatively more than him. It was uh, more yeah. conservative for you. Okay. It, yeah. He did a pretty good job. Um, but I, I still had some ways to bring the price down. Okay. That. Okay. So, uh, but because he'd done a good job, it was, uh, it was definitely, it was a six cap already. Right. When I, when I bought it. Great. And yeah. uh, so I, I figured either, uh, you know, he's done a great job on the underwriting or this building is a disaster. Hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go out and take a look at it. I was out there the next morning. Uh, we took a look at the building. The seller was there as well. And I looked at the building and there were some challenges with it, which is how I ultimately knocked down more of uh, the price on it. Hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, I took assignment of that deal, um, like literally that same day, because I saw there was going to be no issue with it. Hmm. And I still inherited some of his conditional periods in there as well. So I just immediately called up my mortgage broker. I said, here's the pro forma on this, on the as is. I said, here's what it looks like on the as complete. Mm-hmm. I sent it to my appraiser, who I usually use as well. I said, Dan, can you take a look at these numbers? Will you support my, uh, you know, my my underwriting and my pro forma here? And he replied back, uh, you know, within a couple of hours. He said, Yeah, I'm good to go. He said, uh, He said, you know, obviously subject to me doing all the inspections and looking at it. I said, But if it's what you say it is, I'd support this. So the numbers seem to make sense to me. It was conditional or not? It was still conditional at that period. I inherited oh. the condition period. So in that one, it was, I had my appraiser tell me he was comfortable with it that day. My mortgage broker said, I should have no issue getting you a lender on this. And so I took assignment on that deal, uh, literally 24 hours after seeing it. Hmm. Um, And then that one was a, you know, was an interesting one because that was what I was telling you about when I closed in March, just when Russia had invaded Ukraine (laughs) was driving the interest rates crazy. So it was, uh, it became challenging only because I had advanced the close. So mm. because at a six cap in that area and with so much upside potential in that particular deal, it was cash flowing right away. So mm. uh, I was able to close that early because uh, that was another thing. The CMHC, as you know, usually takes about 10 weeks to do their underwriting. Yeah. I had, that one back, I had it back in four days, Adam. Four days. It's yeah. unheard of. Did you close? Oh, okay. You closed in four days? No, no, no. The the uh, CMHC underwriting. It's 10 weeks, four, yeah. Yeah. They did their underwriting in four business days. How? <laughs> I know. It's unbelievable. So, and I said, 
well, great. I had budgeted 10 weeks. So I asked the seller if we could advance the close by two months because okay. it was cash flowing. I wanted the money now. Oh, okay. <laughs> but he didn't want to, or you closed early? Oh yeah, we did. We closed uh, two months early. Oh, okay. Um, okay. And it, it may have been a saving grace in the end because, you know, uh, the new close date was happening about the same time that Russia invaded Ukraine. Interest rates dipped a little bit, and but then they started to spike, right? So and you closed before the invasion. That's great. No, just like probably three weeks in. Um, what? Which rate is? It was 2.5, 2.6? Well, when I first underwrote the deal, uh, I qualified it at about 2.5 to 2.75. Okay. And because that, you know, that gave me a little bit buffer at the time and CMHC underwrote it and had a limit of 3.45. So uh, during closing, they, they said, as long as it's 3.45% or lower, we hmm. will, we will insure it. Okay. So, but what was happening is uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, the bond market collapsed. And when hmm. the bond market collapses, what happens is, the yields on those bonds, right? What the bond holder pays the, the person holding the bond hmm. uh, or the bond issuer pays the bond, the guy holding the bond, that's the yield. And so when you're getting a commercial mortgage or any fixed mortgage, quite frankly, what they do is they go to the bond market and they buy a bond, a mortgage bond, hmm. and then you're paying the yield price on it plus a spread for the bank. And hmm. that's what your interest rate is. So what was happening at that time uh, was because the bond market was closed, uh, you know, due to fear of what was happening in Russia and Ukraine, uh, and it was the the bond yield was going up, right? Because you have to give a higher yield to create incentives for people mm. to want to continue to buy your bonds. Mm. So th as that was going up, I was looking at my interest rate costs going up very quickly over that period of time. So now I was in a real hurry to close as fast as I could oh, because okay. I wanted the lower interest rate. Um, and even as it was, I ended up at 3.45, but in order to do that, the interest rates were actually a little higher at that point. Hmm. So you have to do what's called a buy down on the mortgage. So I had to inject more money into that deal to you know, effectively make the amount of loan smaller, right? Is kind of what it amounts to so that they could still run it as if it was a 3.45. Oh, okay. So in, uh, what was the uh, LTV on this, uh, to, to able to close the deal? Uh, that LTV was 82%. Oh, okay. Yep. Uh, okay, so you bumped only 3% difference between 85 and 82. Uh, well, yeah, but it's, remember, see, this is underwriting as a six cap uh, with as is rents, and CMHC doesn't care about the upside. Right? Yeah, so correct. Yeah, just yeah. the as is, yeah. and uh, so it worked out with their underwriting at about eighty percent loan to value, which I consider a win. Yeah. Um, yeah. But when I do the refi, and I took a five-year mortgage on this one, so at the end of five years, I'll do a refi on that. Uh, the rents will, for the vast majority of the units, will be at market at that point, and I know I'm going to get all my working capital back out of it without a doubt. So the plan is uh, cash for keys, or no? Well. The only time I really use cash for keys is if I've got a tenant that's creating problems. Okay. Okay. So like I said, I don't like to interfere with people's lives. Mm -hmm. uh, I like them to live, you know, in comfort without fear. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, life throws enough anxiety at people. I don't need to be another source of anxiety. Mm -hmm. So we run a very ethical business and I'll just wait for them to go. 
And that's why I picked the demographics. Now, if a tenant is being a pain in the butt with other tenants or with ourselves, so for example, if it's a non-smoking unit and they're insisting on smoking and they're bothering all the other tenants, mm. uh, we'll start with an N5 process and we'll go down that path. Uh, but then we'll have a discussion with them and say, look, we can go down to the landlord tenant board side of things. Uh, we can continue to pursue this N5 slash L2 application. So, but I'm going to make it easy for you, right? Because I don't think you're necessarily a bad guy. So what I'll do instead is I'll give you uh, the equivalent of first and last month's rent for your new place mm. uh, and maybe a moving budget of a thousand dollars. Okay. But in exchange, I'll get you to sign this mutual termination in Ontario. That's an N11 form. Yeah. So, so in those cases, I'll do a cash for keys. Um, but if a tenant is otherwise a good tenant, I typically won't do that. Okay. Okay. Uh, my final question would be uh, the next event on June 8th on mm-hmm. Ottawa. So tell me about the event and uh, the organization. I think the name is Aria. Oreo, yeah. Oreo, yeah. It's just a, like uh, confusing yeah, okay. with uh, with uh, with Oreo. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's confusing because of Oreo, which is the Ottawa Real Estate uh, or Ontario Real Estate Association, but yeah. no, it's Oreo, which is the yeah. Ottawa Real Estate Investor Organization. Yeah. So O R E I O dot org. Yeah. Uh, and thank you for for mentioning that. Um, so I sit on the executive team and the vice president of the of the Oreo uh, team. Uh, we're a club. We're not profit club. Uh, you know, people pay dues. It's only $127 a year, but it's yeah. really just to pay for our costs. Um, you know, we hold it at the infinity center here in Ottawa. Um, and so uh, we meet once a month. Typically uh, we're usually presenting really interesting topics yeah. for people to learn. Uh, and it's uh, new investors as well as experienced investor- investors get a lot of value out of it. Um, you know, I'm an experienced investor, uh, and uh, one of my colleagues, Victor Manash, uh, who uh, is uh, also quite well known, he um, he's a big developer. So he's usually, I think he's got about 700 units in his pipeline right now, right? In terms oh, of I'm business. sorry, I didn't catch the name. Michael Chan? Victor Manash. Um, Victor Manash. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He also hosts the Real Estate Espresso podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Victor's great. Um, so, but we'll have a lot of newer investors as well. So we cater to both ends and we do, you know, so for example, uh, uh, last month we did a lot on detailed uh, market analysis, hmm. uh, understanding the dynamics in the economy. And we had an actual economist, right? A finance economist that was uh, talking about it. We had uh, someone from Denton's two months ago talking about proper... Hmm structure of of, uh, joint ventures, GPLP structures, and knowing that you're on side with the Ontario Securities Commission. Mm -hmm. So we had a whole session on that. On June 8th, we have uh, Elizabeth Kelly and Mm -hmm. uh, Cherry Chan talking. Uh, Elizabeth's going to be talking about uh, various investment choices that investors have, especially in more challenging times like this. And what's the right investment decision or right investment strategy, if you will, in a time that's in flux, as well as meeting your own personal objectives. Uh, Cherry is going to be speaking about um, uh, how to avoid audit traps and the things that a lot of investors make mistakes uh, because they don't consult with their accountant beforehand. And they always should before they start a project. 
Um, there's lots of things in the Income Tax Act that you can accidentally trip over. And if you get audited, it can be a world of hurt. Mm, so Sherry's so. going to be speaking to, um, you know, things to be aware of and avoiding the audit traps. Uh, and so, you, you're going to be speaking, I think. Uh, well, I speak sometimes, but we like real people to, to, to present and, and offer value all the time. So I've certainly presented in the past, but it's mm. uh, those are the two main speakers. And then mm. we usually do things like a deal share as well. So if people have uh, a deal and they want investment partners, uh, we also have an action taker segment. So people can say what they've done in the past month, uh, something, you know, uh, whatever it is, a small step or a big step. So it could be something as simple as I've acquired my first property. It could even be I put my first offer in, right? Whatever achievement that they have, we like to celebrate people's success. I think um, this is the biggest uh, club in real estate in Ottawa, correct? Yeah, yeah. We have probably about 400 uh, uh, paying members. Okay. Um, yeah, and we bring a lot of guests come in as well. So the June 8th event is uh, expect is going to have a very large turnout, uh, but fortunately we have a very large venue. Especially after COVID, everyone is really in. Like, uh, you saw what happened on on uh, on uh, on Toronto last week. Everyone was really exciting to to see each other, like seeing faces and hugs and shaking hands and seeing actual faces. Like after two years, this was really hard on uh, on everyone. I think so. Yeah, everyone is in it. Like ex exciting about this events. So uh, my last one, uh, how people can follow your success uh, on social media? Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm always happy to, to help people, you know, that want to follow what we do. Um, it gives me a lot of energy, shall we say, to see other people succeed. Hmm. Um, so uh, you, you can certainly follow me. I mean, our website is, a, my, my company's name is Oliferous. Okay. So okay. A-L-I-F-E-R-O-U-S. And it really means it's Latin for with wings, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, I thought it was clever, and that's why our logo is wings. Uh, so your background is Latin? No, 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 I'm French. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So, but uh, it's uh, our website is oliferous.ca. Okay. Uh, on Facebook, we're Oliferous Group. Uh, okay. On uh, on Instagram, Oliferous Properties. Uh, I think it's Oliferous Group on LinkedIn. But if you if you look for Oliferous, we're the pretty much the only one. Uh, I had, it's a registered trademark in Canada, so uh, that limits other people from being able to use my mark. Amazing, amazing. Again, <laughs> um, thanks a lot for your time on this. Yeah. And of course, uh, Adam, uh, you can follow me personally. So yeah. Christian Spielfogel, um, yeah. I'm all over Facebook and LinkedIn. So I think you're on Instagram too or not? I'm sorry? You're on in Instagram too or not? I, I am. I, I'll admit I'm not very active on Instagram, yeah, okay. um, but I spend a, a lot of time hanging out in Facebook and LinkedIn. Okay. Okay. Again, thanks a lot for your time today. We're really happy to bring you again to the show. Uh, and again, I appreciate your time and uh, accepting the invite. It's my pleasure, Adam. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot.